So let's continue our, our reflections on uh, conditioned arising. There's um, one passage in the suttas where the Buddha, where I think it's Sariputta, the Buddha's chief disciple says, the one who sees conditioned arising sees the Dhamma. Again, a very explicit uh, recognition that at the heart of the Buddha's teaching is this insight or this awakening to the phenomenal world in all of its contingency and flux and its poignancy and tragedy and beauty that comes and goes and is all around us through all our senses all the time. I'd like to start by, by reading a passage I referred to yesterday. It's the 38th uh, discourse in the uh, middle-length sayings. And it concerns the questions of a man called Sati, the fisherman's son. And he's in conversation with the Buddha and he says, As I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, the Buddha, it is this same consciousness that runs and wanders through the round of rebirths, not another. This one consciousness. And what is that consciousness, Sati? Venerable Sir, it is that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there the result of good and bad actions. Misguided man. To whom have you ever known me te to teach the Dhamma in that way? Misguided man. In many discourses, have I not stated consciousness to be dependently arisen? Since without a condition, there is no arising of consciousness. But you, misguided man, have misrepresented us by your wrong grasp and injured yourself and stored up much demerit. For this will lead to your harm and suffering for a long time. So be warned. And he goes on, because consciousness is reckoned by the particular condition dependent upon which it arises. When consciousness arises dependent on the I, and forms, it is reckoned as eye-consciousness. When dependent on ear and sounds, as ear-consciousness. And then he goes on to nose-consciousness, mouth-consciousness, body-consciousness, mind-consciousness. Just as fire is reckoned by the particular condition dependent on which it burns, when a fire burns dependent on logs, it is reckoned as a log fire. When it burns in dependence on grass, it's reckoned as a grass fire. When dependent on cow dung, as a cow dung fire. So too, consciousness is reckoned by the particular condition dependent on which it arises. So this, clearly in this passage, uh, no room at all for a consciousness that somehow stands behind or outside or beyond the conditioned flux or the conditioned field of fluctuating events. It is one event among many others. And it's here perhaps I find the greatest um, validation in our understanding of the evolution of the natural world, which seems to me to be a kind of an empirical um, illustration of this very principle, whether it be in our understanding of uh, cosmology, how the universe has arisen from this original explosion called the Big Bang, or whether it's in the evolution of life on this earth, or whether it's in the 
evolution of the complexity of the human organism. All of these accounts confirm very much how whatever arises and appears in our world of experience is one that is um, implicated, that is um, a part of this extraordinary, complex, diverse, phenomenal world that we experience. And the same, of course, we can now go on to think of the four ennobling truths. I use the word ennobling because I think that's what it means. Noble truths is a bit tricky because I don't quite know what is noble about craving, for example. My Tibetan teacher um, explained the word noble as meaning that a person who engages with and lives their life within the paradigm or the template of the four truths is thereby ennobled, becomes Arya. Clearly not an ethnic or racial concept any longer, but the Buddha has taken it to uh, speak of a certain uh, dignity and nobility that has its origins in our fully knowing dukkha, our letting go of grasping, our experiencing a stopping of those habits and the opening up and the creating of a path. And here too we can see that we're speaking of a conditioned process. To go back to that first principle in which the Buddha explicates the idea of contingent or uh, contingency or conditional arising. When this is, that comes to be. When this ceases, that does not come to be. When one fully knows suffering, that is the condition that allows the letting go of craving to happen. When there is the letting go of craving, that is the condition that allows for the stopping of craving. And the stopping of craving, even momentarily, is the condition that allows the possibility for the creation of a path. Nagarjuna, who's one of the great commentators, uh, makes this explicit. At the end, I think, of chapter 24 of his verses, he says, the one who beholds conditionality beholds suffering, its origins, cessation, and the path. So the four truths are not for propositions to believe in order to join the Buddhist club, but they are four injunctions upon which to act. They're not beliefs, but they are actions. And this is entirely consonant with the whole tenor of what the Buddha teaches in his idea of conditionality, impermanence, is that we are engaging with the processes of life themselves rather than seeking something beyond, something permanent, something transcendent, whether we call it God or a, a higher kind of transcendent awareness or something. But we're turning about in our orientation to life to a very uncompromising and honest encounter with the world as it unfolds within us and around us in each moment. And this, of course, is uh, the point I feel is made in the passage we started with, where we shift from our preoccupations with our place and we 
open ourselves to this groundless ground where this conditions that, the this conditioned, literally. The paying attention to this and that, the relations between them, how the phenomenal world happens and how it works. That is the arena, the field, in which the values that the Buddha speaks of, wisdom, compassion, love, insight, are found and can be created, can be born. So let's go to the, um, the text itself. I have one further comment to make about the, the two extremes. Um, in this text, it says indulgence in sense pleasure is one extreme and indulgence in self-mortification the other. And the middle way is one that steers a course that avoids slipping into either extreme. But there's a passage I came across recently in the Udana, which is a collection of short pieces um, it's available in English. It's, it's well worth looking at. It's a section called The Courtesan. At that time, it says, there were two factions enamored of and infatuated with a certain courtesan. They were quarrelsome, disputatious and wrangling, attacking each other with their fists, with clods of earth, with staves and weapons sort of thing that still goes on today. <laughs> now here, um, the Buddha uses this as a context to present the two extremes. He says, those who hold training as the essence, or hold virtue and vow, pure livelihood, celibacy, and service as the essence, this is one extreme. And those with such theories and such views as there is no fault in sensual desires, this is one extreme. Now, I find this passage rather unusual. Um, the commentator um, identifies it simply with the two extremes as listed in the first text. But the Buddha seems to here at least, be going somewhat further. He, say, he tends to be saying that any kind of um, identification or attachment to a particular lifestyle, even if it be a spiritual one, can become an extreme. The context of the courtesan suggests, again, the uh, dichotomy between those who indulge in sensuality, and, the, and their opponents being those who withdraw from sensuality and adopt what we might call a holier-than-thou attitude. I would interpret that passage this way. And so the Buddha perhaps seems to be saying that his middle way is one that avoids what we might call... Um, a worldly existence and a religious existence. Again, admittedly, this is um, an uncommon uh, statement. It only occurs this once. But again, it points to, um, it gives us a glimpse, perhaps, into the radical nature of his stance. He saw any lifestyle, any kind of um, identity with orientation as a sensualist or as a spiritual person as potentially another trap. So he starts then by suggesting or saying that he has found this middle way between extremes. 
that leads to tranquility, to insight, to awakening and release. The way the text is structured is that it starts with the path and then without any kind of um, of explanation, he then jumps straight into the first noble truth and the second noble truth, sorry, ennobling truth, and the third ennobling truth, and then the fourth ennobling truth, which turns out to be the middle path. So he starts with the middle path, and then what he does is explain how we enter that middle path. He gives us the various steps needed to engage with this way of life. We don't just say, okay, I believe in that, now I'm part of the club and I'm on the middle way. I'm now a Buddhist. That's entirely uh, inadequate. One needs, as he points out in his description of awakening, a radical reorientation of the fundamentals of one's life. an opening to this ground of contingency. And this starts with the first truth, the injunction to which is fully know dukkha. The key lies in the word fully. What does that mean? Does it mean that we just eyeball dukkha a little bit more intensely? Or does it mean something more than that? I think there are two uh, dimensions that are implicit in this idea of fully knowing. One is the dimension which refers to the the quality and the depth of our knowing. So to fully know means not to be satisfied just with, let's say, having information about dukkha. We all have plenty of information about dukkha each time we open the newspaper or look at the news. It's basically saying, there's some more dukkha out here today, lots of it. Here it's concentrated, today it's concentrated in the border between Turkey and Iraq, or in a famine in Sudan. Now, we know that. We know that information. It might evoke all manner of feelings within us. But to what extent do we fully know that? As the description of the awakening uh, makes clear, It requires a kind of deepening and stilling and opening of our minds and our hearts to the actuality of what is going on. Sometimes the amount of suffering in the world seems so overwhelming that it kind of numbs us. We're incapacitated. We don't know what to do. We feel ashamed, perhaps, that we live in such privilege in a country like this. But apart from that, maybe we make a donation for some charity or something to maybe assuage our conscience. But how does that experience affect us in the depths of our experience? The practice of uh, mindfulness... And the practice of concentration, which we are seeking to cultivate here, are means whereby to deepen and to sensitize ourselves to the condition of the phenomenal world. And particularly, opening and being willing to open ourselves to dukkha. On a more practical, personal level. When we are sitting here in meditation and everything seems to be going okay, 
we're with the breath, we're with the body, we're, we're feeling peaceful, we're feeling calm, we're feeling steady. And then let's say we are um, besieged by an irrational anxiety or fear or a very uncomfortable memory that bubbles up. Something we remember someone said or something we remember that we did that we feel bad about. Or maybe it's simply a physical pain. We get a, an acute sensation in the lower back or in the, the knees or something. It's important at those moments to notice what we do. Do we shy away from it? Do we, it, it, what is our first reaction? It's, oh no, I was having such a nice time meditating, why did that thought have to come along? Or we feel, well, if only I didn't have that pain in my lower back, then I'd be able to meditate. In other words, instead of fully knowing dukkha, we somehow avoid it, or we make it into a justification for not looking, for not seeing. Well, in the next session I'll be better because I'll have worked out that pain, or I've forgotten about that thought. The difficulty and the challenge of this practice is to be able to stay with that experience, to be open to it, without indulging it, but to be able to say, yes, this is what's going on right now. And within this open space of attention, there is enough room for it. It's not going to kill me. It's what my life is manifesting at this moment from conditions from the past. Am I able to say, yes, Okay, fear, anxiety, pain, I see you, I recognize you. One might even go so far as saying, I include you, I embrace you. You can perhaps teach me something. And to notice very much how there is this instinctive aversion, this not wanting, this wanting things to be otherwise, as the Buddha says, not getting what one wants is painful. Getting what one doesn't want is painful. The pain, though, in many respects, is not just about the thing that's happening at that moment, but it's the way we intensify it by rejecting it by demonizing it, by making it a lot worse than it really is. And that's where craving comes in, or grasping. But the fully knowing dukkha um, is not just about uh, a deepening and a stilling and an opening of our awareness, but it's also about an extending or an expanding of our awareness. And this I think we can see also in two ways. And here we run across the very difficulty in translating the word dukkha. The, the fact is that there's not really an English word that renders this term um, adequately. Uh, and so you've probably read in different texts, and including you know, my own translations, suffering, anguish, unsatisfactoriness, pain, misery, stress. Um, there's a whole um, a range of terms that different translators have tried to use to capture the richness of this term. None of them really work. Or let's say they only work within certain limits. Then none, none of them are exactly wrong but none of them are able to capture the range of meanings that the word dukkha has. <coughs> dukkha does refer to pain and suffering. That's clearly the case. But it also is used by the Buddha to describe a feature of the conditioned world itself. He says, sabha sankara dukkha. All conditions are dukkha. 
In other words, living in a contingent world is a dukkha-likely place. A contingent world, one that comes and goes and vanishes and changes and shifts all the time, is just not the kind of place where we're going to find eternal happiness. If we're looking for internal happiness, we won't find it there. And perhaps this is one of the reasons why we seek it outside the realm of the conditioned world. If it's going to be somewhere, it ain't going to be here. It's going to be with God or some other place. The paradox is the Buddha is saying, um, if only we could learn to be in this conditioned world from a more realistic and truthful perspective, then we would find the well-being that we so deeply seek. It's about recognizing the world for what it is rather than being um, convinced that the world is actually other than it is. And this goes back to these points we looked at yesterday. By taking what is impermanent and and thinking of it as permanent, taking something which is not self and identifying it with self. If we can change those perceptions, then we'll no longer be in conflict with the conditioned world. We'll no longer be in a place that we find is constantly uh, failing and failing to live up to our desires. We want lasting well-being. We seek it in this or that or the other thing or relationship or job or object. And inevitably, in the end, it lets us down. If we could reorient our perception in such a way that we see the world more more, uh, truthfully, which may be more difficult, we will come into a kind of harmony with the way the conditioned world works. So to fully know dukkha is to, to fully recognize that the world is not something that can provide us with lasting well-being or happiness. And knowing that is, paradoxically, the way to finding, if not lasting well-being, at least a far greater degree of well-being within the world as it is, rather than as we would like it to be. I think the problem with a lot of, um, of, 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 let's say, modern life, uh, consumerism and so on, um, is that it, to live a life driven one's, by one's desires and so forth and one's attachments and one's fears, um, not only fails in the end to get to provide us with what we most deeply want, but it also renders our life rather flat and superficial. It, it somehow removes the possibility of depth. And in removing the dimension of depth, not only do our lives, as it were, just skid across the surface of things, going, as T.S. Eliot said, from distraction to distraction to distraction, it also... Um, closes us down to what we might call the sublimity of the world, the mystery of the world, the beauty of the world. By fully knowing dukkha, we open ourselves to the tragic dimension of life. But that is not just a recipe for, for gloom and depression. This is the strange thing. When I was a, um, a monk uh, with my Tibetan teachers, every day we had to meditate on death, the certainty of death, the uncertainty of the time of death. 
But when one meditates, in other words, stills the mind and carefully and repeatedly brings these points to mind, to recognize that the only thing that is certain in this life is that one day I will die. Again, we know that intellectually, but we don't really know it. We don't fully know it. If we did, the quality of our experience would be transformed. And again, we know that we could die at any moment. We have friends, our own age, just like us, who die. They're gone. But we tend to think, logically in a way, that death only really happens to other people. If we can internalize the reality that it could occur to us at any moment, that too would radically alter our sense of who we are in this world and what this world is. It's a terribly unreliable place. I would translate dukkha in this, uh, in this wider sense as a characteristic of all conditions as unreliability, undependability. We can't depend or rely on any, on any of this stuff. It's going to let us down. Either it will disappoint us, the thing we are grasping at, or we will stop being around with it. But in terms of feeling, in terms of, um, uh, of what the actual experience is like of fully knowing death in its certainty and its uncertainty, is that we become much more crucially conscious that we are alive at all. In denying death, in, in, in avoiding it, in somehow closing it out, we also deny the reality of life. And we become somehow insensitized to the extraordinary uh, preciousness and wonder of being alive in this moment at all. It's only when we begin to realize how it could go at any moment are we shocked into a consciousness of how extraordinary it is, of how overwhelmingly sublime this moment is. And we see this in the arts. The music, for example, that most moves me, or the theater, are not um, the uh, the bouncy pop songs or screwball romantic comedies, but rather those works of art that are able to um, show us, um, in many cases, the tragic depths of human experience, be it the adagios in classical music, often the slow, mournful movements in a sonata or in a symphony, or be it in um, paintings or other artworks like those of Rembrandt or Vermeer, in which we're not looking just at things that are delightful and pretty, which again is in a way superficial, but the deepest beauty is found when that tragic uh, dimension of life is somehow rendered in a way that strikes those deep chords within ourselves. And some of the work nowadays of the um, artist Bill Viola, I think lives around here, um, I find, I mean, he has works, for, he, had a, he does these big um, video projections. He, he had one of a baby being born on one screen and a man dying on another, um, which you might think, oh, I, don't want to watch, I don't want to watch that. But the power of that kind of art is that it allows us to fully know these things in close-up, in a still space, a gallery. And there's something both profoundly moving and profoundly beautiful about these things. So the fully knowing of dukkha is not um, 
a kind of masochistic, let's make ourselves more miserable approach to life, but rather it's a willingness to confront what life is. And in many ways that's very challenging. We, we, we resist that. But if we can have the stillness within and the clarity and the openness just to see, it will bring into our lives a dimension of depth. Now, of course, the fully knowing of dukkha also extends beyond my own personal experience. And fully, I take to me not just a kind of knowing or seeing cognitively, but also as having an affective dimension. As the mind becomes more still and more open, we become more sensitized to the pain of the world, the suffering of others. It's not just our own suffering that we meditate on, but the more that we become aware in this way, the more we are making ourselves open to the wider suffering of life as a whole. So the fully knowing of dukkha is both um, a deepening of our sense of being human and also an opening to the experience of others, humans, animals, and nowadays I think we would probably extend that to the biosphere as a whole, the living organism around the um, surface of the globe and within the oceans and in the skies. And much of the environmental awareness, ecological awareness, is again a way to fully know the dukkha that is here and potential and potentially capable of becoming far worse for all forms of life on this earth. But can we do that from this more composed and still and meditative perspective? In, the, um, uh, in, 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 in some of the uh, uh, Buddhist uh, philosophical schools, the, the first truth is not understood just as dukkha, but it's understood as having uh, four aspects. Impermanence, dukkha, not-self, and emptiness. The fully knowing dukkha, therefore, is not just focused exclusively on dukkha, but it's focused on all of what the Buddha called these characteristics of life transiency, the not-self. In other words, the more we know fully this dukkha, we realize that any thought, any physical sensation, any object, anything, is not essentially me or mine. It, we have to be careful here. It's sometimes translated as no-self, as though the ultimate or final reality of our being is that there is no self. The Buddha doesn't say this. We'll come back to this issue of self later on. But not-self is, not, uh, is, is sim simply a mark or a sign that characterizes all things. In other words, I or me are not, am not somehow locked in to some part of my inner world or, some, or any part of the outer world. These are just phenomenal processes that come and go. And only in a, in a fairly conventional sense can we think of them as mine as opposed to yours. But they're not intrinsically me or intrinsically mine. So in a way, dukkha too, if it is taking place in another person or in an animal, it's not mine, it's simply dukkha of which 
is occurring in a world in which we are all participants. The borders between this organism and another organism are relatively fluid. Now, as we um, begin to reorient our perspective on conditionality, contingency, something else rather um, important happens. And that is our relationship to the world begins to shift. When we're stuck in our place and our ego and a world in which we're concerned primarily with number one, me and mine, then our way of relating to the world is largely driven by grasping or craving what I want, what I don't want. Craving, or tanha, remember, is not equivalent to desire. It's a very specific modality of desire. Craving has to do... Um, craving lies deeper in classical Buddhist psychology than either desire, greed, or hatred. We talk of greed, hatred, delusion. Greed and hatred are both underpinned and stem from craving. Greed is the craving to get what I want. Hatred is the craving to get rid of what I don't want. And that is our primary struggle with the world, to accumulate and acquire all the things that I associate with pleasure, to get them to be mine, and to remove from my life everything I associate with pain that I don't want to be mine. And that is the push-pull dynamic that drives much of our lives, probably. And yet, we probably know at some level that that doesn't, in the end, really work. So, craving, therefore, um, is quite a deep thing, but it's not equivalent to desire as such. And this is a, it's a wrong translation when we find that. Craving has to do with projecting impossible um, uh, qualities onto the things we want and the things we don't want. We think that if we were to get object X, it would somehow satisfy us in a way that in fact it cannot. The advertising industry runs on this principle. When I see the new G5 titanium Mac power book, <laughs> it seems to emanate an aura of desirability. <laughs> and I feel that if I could have that as mine, then it would provide me with a kind of well-being way beyond what is in, it is in fact capable of doing. Now, we might laugh at that, but it's a very deep-seated um, trait of behavior. And we also feel sometimes that if we were able to get rid of something, then our lives would be transformed for the better in some eternal sense. If only X didn't work in this office, then everything would be great, you know? be wonderful. If only President Bush were not the President of the United States, then we'd be so happy. Now, of course, we, work. we know quite well we won't, but what's interesting is to notice the extent we embellish or we exaggerate in such a way that craving to get rid of, craving to possess, seem justified and seem to have a rationale. So look at that in your experience. Notice how you respond to advertising, for example. Notice how you say, if, only if, only if X were in my life or were not in my life then. And that's often the logic of fantasy, the fantasies that run through our mind when we're meditating, or supposed to be meditating. Very often they are actually framed in terms of that logic. If only 
x, then I'd be happy, or if only x were gone, then I'd be happy. To see through that fictive logic. Now, the Buddha speaks um, of many terms which we could also translate as desire, which are entirely positive. He talks, for example, of Dhamma Chanda, a longing for the Dhamma, a longing for waking up, a longing for transcending our limitations. In some Buddhist traditions, I don't know if we find this in the Pali, uh, faith or shraddha, sadha, is understood as a kind of longing. A, A longing to go beyond what limits us, what causes us to be blocked and stuck and frustrated and limited. The longing for transcendence. The longing for a life which is not held back by all of our fears and anxieties and cravings and attachments. That's perfectly legitimate. So we have to differentiate between craving, which is based on a perceptual exaggeration and legitimates greed and hatred, as opposed to our desires for fulfillment, our desires for awakening, our desires for understanding, our desires uh, to love, which are entirely... Um, natural and entirely uh, possible to be fulfilled. The difference between Dhamma Chanda and craving is Dhamma Chanda can actually be realized, whereas the cravings will never be satisfied. It's about, in some ways, differentiating between needs and wants. What is it that we really need and our striving and our yearning to achieve those needs, and for many people, especially in less privileged parts of the world, those needs for clean water and housing and shelter and employment are not craving at all. They're entirely necessary and legitimate needs that can be met. It's when we get to the point of saying, I'll only be happy if I can have a G5 Titanium Mac PowerBook, that probably that's not entirely necessary. It's, a, it's, it's an add-on, it's an addition, it's something we crave. And I think each of us has somehow to find that distinction between, between those two. So as we fully know Dukkha, craving of its own accord begins to fall away. Because if we begin to see the world as one which is transient, contingent, not me or mine, that is dukkha in these different aspects that I've described it, craving loses its raison d'etre. It loses its rationale. When we fully know dukkha in this way, life in this way, when our lives become more, in a way, deeper and more open and more honest and more sensitized to the suffering of the world, then our petty cravings and desires lose the ground on which they operate. So, When the Buddha says, fully know dukkha, and then in the second truth, let go of craving, he's not saying let go of craving is some kind of volitional thing we can do. Often on a retreat, you go to the teacher with some problem, and they'll say to you, well, just let go of it. (laughs) Which sounds like a good idea, but it begs the question, but how do I let go of it? I can't just say, go, let go, anxiety, just disappear. You can't let go volitionally. You can't willfully let go. That's a contradiction in terms. All you can do, and this again comes back to the Buddha's principle of 
conditioned arising is you can create the conditions whereby letting go will happen by itself. When this is, that arises. When you fully know dukkha, letting go of craving happens. It begins to fall away of its own accord. The Buddha gives one example in the suttas. He says it's like a child who loses interest in making sandcastles. It's not as though the child one year has a major epiphany that sandcastles is a waste of time, (laughs) but rather the child grows out of it. One year he'll go or she'll go back to the beach and just won't do that anymore. And in that sense, uh, this path the Buddha's teaching is likewise one of about, about growing up, not physically, but one might say spiritually, or internally, or consciously. It's a process of of maturing. And as we allow ourselves to embrace the conditioned world in a deep sense, in a heartfelt sense, our priorities and our, our orientations and our values begin to shift such that grasping at this and that, or what the Buddha calls keenly indulging in this and that, grabbing onto this and getting rid of that, no longer has any legitimacy. It falls away. I mean, maybe not all at once, but over time we begin to notice that the way we relate to other people in the world is beginning to shift. We've created conditions in our practice, in our thoughts, in which our orientation to life has changed. And then it's quite a natural step to the third truth, which is experiencing cessation. Now again, when the Buddha says, this is the ennobling truth of the cessation of suffering, he says that is the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving. It's the craving. We're not going to suddenly switch off suffering. The world is, suffering is built into the structure of life. But what can fade away is this, is the intensity of craving and perhaps at certain moments the actual suspension of craving, the stopping of craving. The Buddha is a good enough psychologist to recognize that um, once craving, as it were, stops for a few moments, that doesn't mean that it'll never occur again. In fact, he fully recognizes that one has moments, maybe just a flash or a glimpse may not last very long, in which one touches a kind of total openness, in which one is no longer conditioned by greed, by hatred, by delusion, by craving. And in such moments one realizes for oneself that one can be in this world from a radically different position, or we would say here now, ground. The stopping of craving is, as the Buddha said, the ground. It is hard to see this ground. For those who delight and revel in their place, it is hard to see this ground. The falling away of formations, desirelessness, stopping, Nibbana. Nibbana is that stopping. And it's also called entering the stream. And what is the stream? Well, the Buddha makes this very clear. The stream is the Eightfold Path. The experience of Nibbana, therefore, is not the end of the path. It's actually the beginning. It's that moment of openness within itself in which other possibilities, other ways of being in this world open up. It starts with how we see the world, samaditi. 
usually translated as right view, which I've translated as true seeing. The word sama means something like complete or whole. It doesn't carry with it the implications of right versus wrong, which immediately suggests a kind of moralistic interpretation. That's right, that's wrong. But that's become so embedded in the English Buddhist lexicon that it's very difficult to eradicate it. But it's really about total seeing or whole seeing or complete seeing. It's the same word as in Samma Sambuddha, which we translate as a fully awakened one. We don't say a rightly awakened one as opposed to a wrongly awakened one. So summer is more in the sense of true or authentic. Again, difficult to find the right word. But the uh, moment of experiencing sensation, uh, experiencing cessation or this stopping is also the moment of the first uh, samaditi, of the first step of the Eightfold Path. We're not talking of four separate things here. We're talking of a seamless continuity of experience. Fully knowing dukkha allows for the letting go of craving, which allows for moments in which that craving is no longer the driving force in our lives. It's stopped. And that allows us to enter a path. Now this, is, this, is, this is the classical way of seeing it. I'm not making this up. But because of the multi-life model, the ending of suffering, nirvana, is seen so often as the stopping of rebirth, which is the classical view. But that's the bigger picture, which we're suspending in this approach. Experientially, in this world here and now, the momentary stoppings of craving are the moments in which the path opens up. The path, remember, is an openness, it's an emptiness. A path is not a thing imposed on the ground that we walk along, but it's actually an open space where there's no grass or trees or rocks. It's an unimpeded space where there's no hindrance, no obstruction. It allows us to move freely without being blocked. That's the path. It's a it's a dynamic concept. In Pali and Sanskrit, you can use the term path as a verb. You start pathing. In French, they say cheminement, a pathment. It's your process of life. And this leads us quite organically into another way of seeing the world. In other words, seeing conditioned arising. Classically, samaditi, this true seeing, refers to a true seeing of the four truths. There's something holographic about this model. We look at that one little bit and we see the whole again. But that leads to also then how we start thinking differently, samasankapa, how we start communicating differently, acting differently, working differently, committing ourselves differently, paying attention, concentrating differently. The path opens up another way of being in this world. And it doesn't just end with sama samadhi, you know, true concentration, because we have to ask, what is it we concentrate on? What is it we are mindful of? And we come back to fully knowing dukkha, where we started. We're in a feedback loop now. And this is the dynamic account of how we live from this ground of conditioned arising, paticca samuppada, from this uh, stopping and opening of ourselves. But I have to stop here. Um, tomorrow, 
I haven't quite finished everything I wanted to say here, so I'll summarize this again tomorrow. But then I'd like to move on to some other issues. Um, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.